Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Friday night, on time, on budget, and delivered the promised benefits. Why do we so rarely hear those words when it comes to major projects, especially government infrastructure ones? Well, the co-author of a great book called How Big Things Get Done joins us with some answers. Nearly 40 years since it launched, a new documentary takes a look at the history of much music called 299 Queen Street West, the station's street address in Toronto. Filmmaker Sean Menard revisits its heyday through the eyes of the many VJs that became household names right across this country. And he tells us all about it ahead of its premiere at the huge South by Southwest Film Festival in Austin, Texas, later this month. But first, what is Thundersnow? Well, lots of people in Southern Ontario got a first-hand look at it in the skies. Well, lots of people in Southern Ontario got a first-hand look as the skies lit up during a major snowstorm that slammed into the region on Friday night. Global News Senior Meteorologist Anthony Farnell joined us from the heart of the storm to tell us all about it. You know what they say about March, in like a lion, out like a lamb. Well, it's certainly roaring in southern Ontario tonight. Uh, There's snow falling. The OPP, the Ontario Provincial Police and Toronto Police are warning people to stay off the roads. They are in the midst of a major snowstorm tonight. And with it has come something quite rare. It's called thunder snow. Have a listen. That was thanks to Global News reporter Sean O'Shea right out his da- outside of his downtown Toronto place. Wow. Can you imagine right in the middle of a blizzard and you get that as well? Apparently it hit the CN Tower. The CN Tower was struck by lightning this tonight in the middle of this storm. Um, there's been highway closures in Toronto. Roads are closed. Things are looking pretty impassable. But don't take my word from it. Uh, Global News' Chief Meteorologist Anthony Farnell joins us on the line now. From right in the middle of it, to Anthony. Thanks for taking time on a on a busy Friday night. Yeah, no, no problem, Ben. I've been uh, kind of outside uh, and just uh, enjoying it, embracing it. And I think a lot of people in Toronto are doing just the same. They got home. It's Friday night, and they're just watching in awe. And you uh, you played that clip of the thunder snow. There's been about twelve or thirteen separate strikes over the last couple of hours here. So it, it's been it's been a big storm so far. No kidding. I mean, we saw it. We heard a lot about it coming. It was kind of roaring up from the south. That's where it's come from. Right? It's swept across the U.S. and right into southern Ontario. Yeah. I mean, it, it originated at the beginning of the week, bringing snow to Victoria and Vancouver. So we, we saw it in right. B.C. and then down in California. And then it cut across the desert southwest. Uh, Tucson, Arizona got snow, which they don't often see. And, and then yesterday with severe storms in uh, Dallas and, and through the Southern Plains today as well. And, and now uh, it's shifted north and into that cold air. And we have uh, mostly snow falling in, uh, in Southern Ontario. Yeah, how bad is it? it, it I've been, just been watching everything on social media and it looks like a really big storm. I mean, that's, that snow looks like it's falling fast. Uh, it's falling fast. The temperature it plays such a crucial role. And we've had quite a bit of snow the last nine or ten days around here. But every time there's been that risk of freezing rain or rain or ice pellets, and oftentimes that, that's limited the accumulation. Uh, and even today, it, it's, it's sticking to everything. It's a winter wonderland out here. But uh, the winds are howling, and it is tough to shovel 
but it is staying snow this time around, and that's why we're talking some, some big time numbers when it when it comes to accumulation. Yeah, what kind of accumulation are we looking at? Because uh, I was there was some was it you know a whole it was I was trying to remember the number exactly, but there was a lot of snow per hour was a figure that I saw. Yeah, five to almost ten centimeters per hour, and and that wow. even if it happens for two or three hours, you could end up with a foot of snow. So uh, that that's what we're seeing right now. It is at least for the downtown core areas near uh, Lake Ontario, Lake Lake Erie. It's just warm enough so that it's a slushy mess, and it's not accumulating quite as heavily. Once you get north, the big highway, Highway 401, that's normally the the dividing line between just cold enough for for all snow and then that mix uh, on the other side. So uh, that's the area just north of Highway 401 that I think is going to see 30 to maybe some areas 40 centimeters of snow, which which compares to uh, some of the big ones that, that we've seen. And last January rings a bell where a half meter of snow fell, fell in Toronto. Yeah, I remember talk, we talked about that one back then, or we talked about uh, just how about Now, tell me about thunder snow, because I gather it's not, not unheard of, but it certainly is rare. What a sight. Uh, yeah, what a sight and what a sound. And it's really normally a muffled sound because it's in whiteout conditions the flash itself is way brighter than any thunderstorm in the summertime because you have so many snowflakes and that flash reflects refracts off of all of it so it's almost like your eyes have to adjust and it's three or four flashes all at once and typically it's just a a mumbled thunder because it's almost the acoustics of the snow that that keep that sound down but somehow tonight they've been very loud cracks and i think Part of that is a lot of the skyscrapers in Toronto, including the CN Tower, are getting hit. So these are cloud-to-ground lightning strikes that are occurring. And basically, these structures almost taunt or they scrape the, the tops of the clouds. And as this moisture comes in off Lake Ontario, it ends up uh, frictioning and, and creating these thunderstorms. Yeah, I've always thought that the CN Tower must be taunting the skies. Leo, let's let's play it again. Let's have another listen. This is keep in mind when you hear this, this isn't a summer summer rainstorm. This is in the middle of a blizzard. Yeah, Anthony, you could tell how close it is because of the time between the the whoops, which are obviously because of how bright it is, and the clap, which is like a nanosecond afterwards. So it's hitting something close to it because that was right downtown. Yeah, yeah, that was right downtown, and most of these have hit downtown. I was uh, covering the blizzard in Buffalo not too long ago, and that was a, a different setup completely, lake effect snow. But one thing I'm noticing covering these winter storms around here is that we're starting to get more and more of this rather rare occurrence. At least it was thunder snow. So this is the fourth time, I think, this winter that I've been in that type of situation. Uh, in Buffalo, it was uh, likely due to some of the wind farms around the area. And those high structures as well get into the clouds, the lowest level of uh, that thunder cloud, And then it creates uh, basically a point that gets hit often in these setups. So uh, it's something that I know new research is going into. Is this becoming more common? Why is that? But uh, it's still incredible to, to witness it. And you, unlike in the summer where you can set up your camera, you know which way the storm's coming, and it's a lot easier to capture lightning in the summer. 
in the winter, you just have to be lucky. You have to have your phone on you, and uh, <laughs> it's tough to, to catch because it happens so quick. That's right. You wouldn't see it streak across the sky because of the snow and the cloud, right? It's just, uh, yeah. You or know, or even what direction, yeah. what direction to point because you have no idea where it's coming from or, or when it's going to come. But, boy, everybody kind of takes notice when <laughs> you're outside and it's no not supposed to be thundering in the wintertime. No, I mean, you and I both grew up in Montreal, so we know everything there is to know about a good snowstorm. And I don't remember ever ever having to worry about getting hit by hit by lightning. Yes, same here. And uh, we, we deal with ice storms. We don't often deal with thunder snow, but I've gotten used to it. I, I know living downtown, uh, the biggest storms tend to have lightning with them. That's been the case when I was in a condo there. And Sean, uh, who you played that clip from, the thunder snow, uh, lives not too not too far off uh, in the distillery district. So uh, it's, it's whoa, there's another big gust. I'm, I'm just outside right now. Ben. Are you outside? Uh, every, so what's it like, what, yeah, what's it like out there? Every time the wind picks up, uh, either a big chunk of snow comes off of a tree or you just get visibility going down. But it's blowing sideways and it's coating just about everything. And I'm concerned later tonight, I know it's going to continue all night, uh, that these snow amounts, the weight of it is going to start uh, pressing on some of these trees and power lines. And uh, nobody wants power outages, but uh, that's something that, that's on, on the table with this one. Yeah, I mean, just seeing the images of it, it looked like really wet, heavy, that almost too slushy to be good snowball snow, but really, really like just solid, solid mess dropping down on you. Yeah, not something that you want to attach your your skis and go hit the powder slopes. It's not that kind of snow. Uh, I just did the first round of shoveling, and I don't know, part of it is because I I love being outside in a storm, but also I, I tend to to just get out there and do it in the night and then in the morning it becomes a bit easier so uh it's heavy for sure well well, you love this stuff anthony we know it's great right (laughs) i mean if if, especially you mentioned it off the top it is friday night there was ample warning i think toronto's had enough storm weather this year it's late in the winter people know i think know that they should be home and staying off the roads there's certainly been a lot of warnings tonight about uh about just how bad the conditions are it must be for must be almost impassable or at least highly ill-advised to go out onto the roads tonight yeah and when you get those rates that we mentioned five to as much as 10 centimeters per hour uh the snowplow fleet is not quite the equivalent to what they have in montreal so they get to the roads but oftentimes you do one pass and then you won't see a plow for another two or three hours especially on the the secondary streets or the secondary highways so by then, 20 centimeters is down, and it's not uh, advisable to get out. Just wait till tomorrow. And that's what I was telling people when I was doing my, my TV broadcast earlier was that, hey, this is March. It is snowing. It's, it's great to be home, have a blanket, maybe a bottle of wine, a fire, whatever it is. And then tomorrow the sun's going to be out. We're up to about 4 degrees in Toronto, 6 degrees on Sunday. It's March. You can enjoy it and uh Basically, just, hey, this is winter. We've gotten off easy here in the east compared to some of you guys out west. But um, this is coming in pretty hard tonight. Yeah. I, and and what, uh, what, what lies ahead, then? This is meant to continue overnight. And then, as you mentioned, it's warm enough so that you can expect most of it to be gone. That'll bring with it some problems, too, because that's an awful lot of, awful lot of melting going on pretty fast. Yeah, just enough melting, I think, to uh, it melts during the day and then freezes at night. So we're not going to really have to worry about flooding, at least not yet. But uh, it's early March. And I mean, the weather pattern 
not just here in the East, but across much of Canada, much of the U.S., is going to turn, I think, pretty cold, colder than uh, we've seen for quite some time. The March version, it's not going to be January cold, but still, some areas, the U.S., (laughs) mid-Atlantic, into the Northeast, there were cherry blossoms. Washington, D.C. is expecting their cherry blossoms in a couple of weeks and now um, perhaps the deep freeze for a few days. So we'll we'll see how that plays out, but uh, still some winter to get through for sure. Yeah, no kidding. So so are you still you're still outside uh, walking around? Yeah, yeah, I'm walking around. The the lights are are amazing because you really see the exaggerated big snowflakes as they're flying, uh, and then you get a gust of wind. I'm a little bit north off the water, so I'm still all snow. But as you go up to where our global TV studios are here in Toronto, we're up at Barbara Green, so we're closer to the 401. And I have a weather mm-hmm. station. I have one at my house. I have one there. And I oh, use wow. some of the other ones. And you can tell the difference in temperature. And it's about half a degree as you go every kilometer north. And then that snow becomes a little lighter, fluffier, and it adds up more. So I, I got this city covered. <laughs> No kidding. Well, Anthony, thank you so much for uh, for taking some time out to share uh, exactly what's happening in thunder snow. I, one last time, what create what causes it? Is it just well, the same phenomenon of of of, of uh, fronts hitting each other? Yeah, I mean, it would be a cumulonimbus cloud, but they're very low based in the winter time. You don't have them going up to twenty, thirty, forty thousand feet into the atmosphere, so they don't extend as high up. And they actually uh, use the snowflakes and wind combined that they rub off of all of each other and creates uh, a lot of friction, a lot of uh, negative, positive energy. And then you need that trigger. And oftentimes it's big, tall buildings or wind ta- or um, wind turbines that uh, tend to focus where those strikes hit. But uh, there are a lot of parts of southern Ontario that have seen thunder snow and some kids for the first time, I'm sure, uh, tonight as it happened before most were in bed well stay stay safe stay, stay dry and have a have a nice weekend despite it all anthony thank you thanks ben this is a really interesting story you know i've obviously mentioned i grew up in montreal in the 70s and we used to joke that the only elephants we'd ever seen were white ones because there were so many construction disasters in montreal as i was growing up whether it was the whole olympic hosting project, but specifically the stadium, the big O-O-W-E, it became known, um, or Mirabelle Airport, which was built a million miles from the city and it was kind of left abandoned out there in the uh, Laurentians and never used. It's gone now, um, amongst other things, right? There was a long list of them. And so when it comes to the problems that cities around the world, places have um, in building mega projects and taking on big projects why do they always always go wrong again here's my earliest memory because this is a famous line before the olympic games in montreal in 1976 uh, the late mayor jean drapeau had famously said the montreal olympics can no more lose money than a man can have a baby and he repeated that right up until the cauldron was lit i repeated i repeated these games 1976 montreal will be the first Olympic Games since the renovation of the Games in 1896 that will be entirely self-financed. Yeah, yeah, that didn't work out, did it? Uh, the budget was for $310 million for the total cost. The stadium was supposed to be 100 but 130 
overall, it came in at $1.5 billion, so five times that. The stadium alone was $836 million. million. I remember at the time, I think we could have built uh, something like 27 Metrodomes, the thing they built in Minnesota, in Minneapolis, for the price we paid for that stadium. Uh, it took 30 years to pay off. It is a classic example of what is a very common problem, from bridges to highways, Navy vessels to fighter jets, subway lines to airports. It goes on and on and on. Budgets blown, timelines blown, don't come as advertised. What is it about big projects that nobody seems to be able to get right? In fact, according to the co-author of the book we're about to talk about, no less than 92% of mega projects come in over budget or over schedule or both. More modest stuff like launching a small business, organizing a conference, or just finishing a work project also often fail. Why is the answer? How do we always do this? How have we not learned the lessons of the past? How could you host something like the Montreal Summer Games in this country and then vow never to let that ever happen again? And yet it happens all the time. Here in Victoria, the Johnson Street Bridge, this tiny little bridge that they had to replace, the thing was a fiasco. It was a fiasco. And you think, how does that happen every single time? Major building projects have an average cost overrun of 62%. Major building projects. Businesses are just as prone as government, by the way, to misjudge the costs and mess things up. But of course, with government, it's all very public. So we see it. Uh, Major building projects have an average cost overrun of 62%. 18% of information technology projects have cost overruns above 50%. 18% above 50%. It's all eye-watering. It is. So why can't we learn from our mistakes? Well, to help us answer that question is author Dan Gardner in Ottawa. He's a journalist and co-author of a really great book called How Big Things Get Done. Dan, thank you. Glad to be here. This is a a fascinating, um, because it's a timeless argument, isn't it? Why is it that governments over time, and and not just governments, struggle so much to get big things done? Where I mean, you've looked into this. What are some of the roots of the problem? Yeah. First, let's set the stage. I mean, it's 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 it's. You think it's bad? It's actually much worse than you think. Um, my co-author Ben Schlivberg is uh, an Oxford professor, has the world's largest database on big projects, uh, all different project types, countries around the world. And if you boil all the numbers down, there are basically three headings that a project is supposed to deliver on. It's supposed to be on budget. To be on time, and it's supposed to deliver certain benefits like numbers of people moved or profits or whatever. The number of projects that are on budget and on time is 8.5%, which is dreadful. But if you have benefits, the number which are on budget, on time, and deliver the benefits that they promise comes to 0.5%. So that's a a small number. That's a small number. It's it's really, really bad. We have a terrible track record. Uh, And so then the question is, why is it? And and this is true, by the way, again, emphasize different countries, different project types. Why are we so consistently bad? And I think really the fundamental answer, and this is where we have to go for, for solutions, is it's the one commonality of objects is people. Um, public sector, private sector, it doesn't matter what the technology is. It's always people who are making the key decisions, who are driving the project. 
And it's human decision-making that is causing the breakdowns. And if we correct that human decision-making, we can start to make more projects that are actually on budget, on time, and deliver the benefits that they promise. Right. So, so nineteen. I mean, you, having to go back nearly a century to find, you know, the the textbook example of how things could be done well <laughs> seems like. So, what was it about the Empire State Building project that worked so well? Well, it was a number of things. One of the things that they did right was that they emphasized the value of experience. Now, this sounds again like you know a lot of the things that I'll talk about are they sound like common sense, but <laughs> they may be sensical, but they're not common. Um, they they emphasized the importance of experience. And so what they did was they got an architect who had actually built a similar building uh, using a similar design previous to that building. Um, the architect, that's, so that was an experienced architect. They hired a firm which had a solid track record of building skyscrapers at remarkable speed. So that's an experienced firm. Um, the other thing that the architect did was he he designed the floors to make them as much as they as identical as they could be going up. And what that meant was when the uh, construction workers built one floor and then they moved to the next floor, they were just basically repeating what they had already done. And they kept repeating and kept repeating. But, uh, you know, the other thing I would like to emphasize, though, is. As, as you know, I love the Empire State Building story, but we actually don't have to go back all that far to find, you know, exemplary projects. A good example uh, is Frank Gehry, the Canadian-American architect, who is a, right. a legend in the world of architecture. And one of the things that Frank Gehry does is now Frank Gehry, if you know his architecture, he's, he, he produces these wild, amazing, imaginative buildings that don't look like anything that's ever been built before. And that's exactly the type of project which is most likely to go wrong. Right. You've never done it before. What could go wrong? That could go wrong. Well, guess what? Frank Gehry has actually figured out a way to build buildings on budget and on time, even though they're wildly innovative. And how does he do that? He does that because. He has a digital simulation. He has a computer-based simulation of the building that is unbelievably rigorous and detailed. And, and then what he does is he constantly iterates on that simulation. Yeah. And one looks at why that doesn't happen everywhere. And I, and I guess, I mean, I've covered lots of cost overrun projects over the years. Uh, a lot of the time, the problem seems to be underselling. I mean, it's the contractual aspect of it. It's politics versus you know, the long-termism you need to do something right uh, often gets in the way. And it exists, I gather, in the private sector too. It's the idea of let's get this done now. Let's get this done as inexpensively as possible and we'll deal with the problems when we reach them. And of course, then the problems mount, the whole thing goes off the rails. That's that's exactly the problem. Uh, you know, you know, I want to emphasize this is public and private sector alike. This, is, this plagues everybody. Um, basically what happens is projects typically uh, don't, go wrong so much as they start wrong. What typically happens is projects start with cheap, superficial planning, and then people start work and it gets underway and everybody's enthusiastic because they've got shovels on the ground. And then guess what? Because you did superficial planning, you didn't spot problems. You didn't come up with solutions. Well, the problems will surface during delivery, and when they surface during the delivery, they can cause, uh, you know, chain reactions. One problem causes another problem, causes another problem. Before you know it, everything gets bogged down, and that's how projects go terribly wrong. So the key thing is to slow down at the beginning and do really rigorous planning. 
Um, but that doesn't happen for a number of reasons. Number one, it's contrary to some basic human psychology. We basically, we assume too much and we're too confident. And so we say, oh, of course we can go ahead because we already know how, how, how this is going to unfold. Big mistake. But the other big problem is it's a, there's a cultural fit. Uh, number one, in the world of business in particular, there's a, there's a thinking that basically planning isn't doing right? Doing is what's valuable. Planning is just a whole bunch of talk. So you want to get going. Well, that cultural impetus is not helpful at all. And then there's another big problem. And the big problem is that sometimes uh, cheap superficial planning, which underestimates how difficult a problem will be, uh, which ignores problems entirely, it allows you to lowball the estimated cost of the project and how quickly the project can be done. And if you're trying to sell the project, that can actually be pretty useful. So uh, my co-author, Ben Flivberg, uh, he calls this strategic misrepresentation. Uh, I am a journalist. I prefer plainer language. It's called lying. Dan Gardner is a journalist and co-author of a book called How Big Things Get Done. Uh, you know, anybody anywhere in Canada will know that big, big projects, big infrastructure projects have a way of going completely off the rails. Um, and so, it, you know, the same is true of the private industry as well. We just don't hear about it as much in the private sector. Um, Dan, one of the things that I that always is a bit of a concern is that having grown up at a time when, you know, they did build a metro and, and you know, they expanded the, the metro quite significantly in Montreal when I was a kid. We did end up with an Olympic stadium that no one wanted, but they built it. Um, an airport that was never used. You know, there's there's some bad examples, but you worry when you look at how people then react to the inability to get these things done and think, okay, now we're not going to be able to build anything because of these issues. And people are pretty savvy to them now because of things like social media and how quick information spreads. Oh, you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the uh, most dire responses to this problem is exactly that level of cynicism. Uh, you know, if they say it's going to cost X, you can count on it costing four times X. Uh, we shouldn't do big projects because they can never can never succeed. And they're always going to be white elephants. Those statements are not true. Uh, full stop. We can do big projects. We can build successfully. Uh, we just have to know how to do it. And, th and this is one of the reasons why, uh, you know, the strategic misrepresentation I referred to is so corrosive, because down the road, it will destroy people's faith. And we need that faith in order for us to be ambitious and to build exciting new things that we need. The partisanship in politics, too, doesn't seem to help, does it? <laughs> Well, no, of course, because, you know, you always want to jump on the other guy, right? When something goes wrong, uh, that's just the nature of politics. But the fact is, it, regardless of what party you are, uh, we should all want to improve our record on big projects because, number one, we're paying for them. Number two, we need them, right? They improve the quality of our lives. And for really big problems, like, say, climate change, we have to build on a scale that human beings have never built on before. And if we're going to do that, and we're going to do that without uh, bankrupting ourselves, uh, we have to start doing this so much better. And we can. A uh, perfect example of this is um, solar and wind power, which we talk about near the end of the book. Regardless of what you think about climate change and which policy is best, the story with solar and wind power is profoundly important because they've become so much cheaper, so much more efficient 
those projects do not go dramatically over budget and over time, and they do deliver. Why then do they deliver when so many other projects don't? Well, if you look at what, imagine a solar farm. What is a solar farm? A solar farm is an incredibly simple idea. It's basically just a whole bunch of solar panels. You got one solar panel, then you put up another solar panel, then you put up another solar panel. And that's modularity. That's extreme modularity. Well, we can replicate that in other fields. Um, remember, I mentioned at the start of the interview, the Empire State Building. Mm-hmm. You might say, well, you can't make a modular skyscraper. Well, that's kind of what the architect of the Empire State Building actually did by replicating each of those floors. So if we take on board this idea of modularity and we think to ourselves, okay, um, what's my Lego? If you think about building blocks, right? You can build things out of Lego. You can build anything out of Lego. And it brings me back. You mentioned, I think, the Madrid Metro was one of them. They came under fire because it was a bit boring, but the thing got built fast. It works. I mean, really, that's all you want, right? I mean, that's what ultimately you don't need it to be this beautiful work of art. What you want it to be is is functional and, you know, and, and feasible. That's exactly it. So one of the reasons why the Madrid Metro, which was a huge project that went ahead uh, and was on budget and on time, went ahead at speed that other cities can't imagine. One of the huge reasons why it was a success is that they said the stations are going to be identical. They're going to be simple. They're going to be clean. They're going to be functional, but they're going to be identical. So in effect, what they ended up doing was making modular stations. So that each time they went to put in a new station, they were just putting in the same station. Um, you're right. Does that make the stations, are the stations temples? Are they monuments? Are they? Do they make you gasp with their beauty? No, it doesn't. <laughs> but they got the project done on time, on budget. And guess what? Those are highly functional stations. They do what they're supposed to do. Um, and that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? It does, especially if you grew up watching the Olympic Stadium, which was supposed to be this marvel, but because they never built one like it in a climate like Montreal's, it was a disaster, which goes right back to sort of the the epitome of what you're saying is, you know, there are ways of doing this properly. Um, and oftentimes it's sort of rinse and repeat. Yeah, that that's exactly it. Um, you know, I said at the outset, you know, maximizing experience. Um, if you want to go and build a building or do something that has never been done before, well, that's good. That's ambitious. That's exciting. But you have to recognize that you are actually minimizing experience at that point. And so you have to therefore compensate in some other way. So for instance, Frank Gehry, as I mentioned, Frank Gehry in his extreme simulations, digital simulations, he's doing that in order to compensate for the fact that this type of building has never been built before. But, you know, when you come along and you say, you know, a politician who says, oh, we're going to have uh, the world's biggest tunnel or the world's tallest this or whatever. What you're saying is you're going to be the first who's ever done this, which means nobody has experience doing it. And basically, the moment you say that you are guaranteeing there's you know, you're in danger. You're in a lot of danger. It's very similar to, by the way, um, when it comes to uh, hiring firms to do the work. So, for instance, if, say, just to use a hypothetical, if, say, the Royal Canadian Navy wanted to buy a bunch of new ships at a great expense, they could go to the world's greatest and most experienced shipbuilders, which tend to be in South Korea, and they could buy ships off the shelf for a set price and get those ships delivered quickly. Well, guess what? The Canadian government decided, no, we're not going to do that. 
this work has to be done by Canadian firms. Well, the Canadian firms did not have that experience. They are not the world's leading shipbuilders. They do, they do not have a ton of experience. And as a result, our shipbuilding program is a mess and we are going to be paying for it for decades. Um, again, there are costs to doing this wrong. Uh, and benefits to doing it right, Dan. I, I hope in our lifetime, we see more, more of that. We get that 0.5% up a little higher. Thanks so much. Thank you. Tonight, live from coast to coast, the launch of Canada's first 24-hour music channel, the nation's music station, Much Music. Remarkable to think that that was 40 years ago next year. 40 years ago next year, Much Music launched back in 1984. If you were a Gen Xer, as I am, and you were in your early teens when that happened, it was quite the moment. We had heard of MTV. We didn't get to see it. We had watched videos, of course, on you know different channels, but we didn't have our own 24-hour music video network until that came along. And it changed just about everything. It really did. It, uh, you know, bands that, that, you know, there were a lot of bands that whose name, whose popularity was famous, especially Canadian bands were really promoted by Much Music and turned into household names for a lot of people my age. It broadened a lot of our knowledge of music. I remember seeing so many bands for the first time on Much Music or Music Plus, the Quebec version. I grew up in Quebec, of course. So, you know, bands like Nirvana, bands like, you know, tons. It's hard to begin, know to where to begin when it came to the impact that Much Music had on the musical tastes and the charts for the period when it was at its very height, I've been a you know a twenty year period between nineteen eighty four and two thousand and four. So, what was it all about? What was going on behind the scenes? Because oftentimes, um, you know, the station itself seemed to be as you know the VJs and the station seemed to be as much of, as part of the fame as the artists themselves. You know, names like Christopher Ward and JD Roberts, Erica M, uh, were then moved on to other big names over the years: Master T, Mike Williams, uh, Sukin Lee. There was there was I mean, I just can go on and on and on. Well, it's all the subject of a new documentary called 299 Queen Street West, which, of course, was where it was if you've ever been in front of that building. Here's a taste of the doc. There weren't any studios. You did the shows inside of the workspace. I realized at the beginning there was nothing that we wouldn't do or play. There was no script. There was no direction. There was nothing like this in the world. The very first time I walked into the building, it hit me like, I need to be here. I was this kid who was this huge fan. Now I'm here, now I'm a part of it. Just talking about it right now gives me goosebumps. It was live TV, and as soon as that shot was over, it was halfway to Mars. never be so far removed from the audience because they were right there looking at you. There you have it. From the words, through the eyes of the VJs, the video disc jockeys, I guess they would be called. Uh, I had a movie called, a documentary called 299 Queen Street West, which uh, which will premiere soon. Sean Menard is the filmmaker, the director behind it, and he uh, joins us now from Hamilton, I believe, tonight. Sean, how are you? I'm I'm doing great, Ben. I, I'm actually located in Toronto, and it's the biggest oh, phone Tor- of the year. So I, I saw that. Yeah, 
we were talking about the storm. It's it's it's. Are you watching the lightning? I don't think I've ever seen. I was just uh, driving back. I, of course, didn't check the weather before I left and came out of a restaurant to the storm. And uh, I don't think I can ever remember seeing lightning in the winter storm before. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. Thunder snow, it's called. We were talking about it off the top of the show tonight. Uh, speaking of interesting and speaking of 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 big spectacles, I remember. You know, I used to go to Toronto all the time. My mom was there. And, you know, a walk past 299 Queen Street West was a must just to see what was happening because something was always happening around that building. What was your inspiration for for taking a look at the history of much music? Ah, oh, man, I think it was um, a great intro off the top, by the way. I love that you were tying it all together to the origins in your own story of growing up. And it seems like I'm, I'm getting hit up by a lot of people that had similar stories. I, I grew up watching the channel, man. It was the VJs to me... You know, in the mid to late 90s, they were like my babysitters. You know, it, was, uh, <laughs> it felt like that being in, you know, middle school and, and up into high school watching it. But um, it just got to a point where, honestly, it felt like everyone was kind of forgetting. You know, you'd walk by that building now and it didn't have that same magic that it used to have. And I don't know, you get to a point where you say, you start thinking of ideas. And I've been trying to make this film for about six years. Wow. Um and then you get to a point where you say it's kind of now or never. I'm moving forward with this um, because it's important. It's important that that people kind of don't let this part of our history just you know kind of go on and, and not be remembered. So that was really the uh, kind of the genesis of why I needed to do to do to, you know make the film. Make the film now. I, yeah, I mean, I, to me, what was so remarkable. I mean, I was in my teens when Much Music came along. I think it was Much Music's ability to show you so much different kind of music that was that was its real power you know the bands that you know i listened to a lot of hip-hop growing up i listened to a lot of uh, you know sort of depeche mode kind of stuff so you know i had the music that i liked and then all of a sudden here comes much music and they exposed you to all kinds of stuff that you'd never normally have listened to maybe even on the radio and then the videos you know even just watching a video sometimes would make you like a band i mean, I remember seeing the video for smells like teen spirit for the first time and thinking wow like that's gonna be a big hit um that must have been the same for you too just how much it exposed you to yeah, I think it was it was it was a great time because you had you know the birth and genesis of, of rap and hip hop. You had this electronic music that was coming out. You had all these different you know rock and grunge. And when you sat down, you didn't really know what you were going to get. But you in a in a video flow shift or whatever, if you'd watch for an hour, you could see all those different genres of music, maybe even country music, thrown in there. And I, it seems to me that we've gotten away from that in how we just. You know, and when I think of the, you know, a radio station plays one specific genre or Spotify or YouTube gathers the things. I don't know. There's something kind of really cool about that eclectic. You don't know what you're going to get. You might discover uh, something that you didn't know you were going to love. And I think there's a real beauty in that. You told it, decided to tell it through the eyes of the VJs. You know, I looked it up on Wikipedia because I, I, I couldn't actually, if I'd started to write them down, I would have run out of space because I recognized so many of the names over time of these people who I watched so much of. I mean, when I first started watching, it was the J.D. Roberts, of course, who went on to become John Roberts at CNN and Fox and so on, and then Erica M. and Christopher Ward and all those. But I mean, whole generations grew up with different sets of VJs that became important to them. Yeah, and it was, I mean, that was important to when you're trying to think about, okay, how am I going to cover three generations essentially of this, the history of this channel? And it seemed to make the most sense to, to almost, uh, you know, reimagine what it was like when you actually sat down and watched the channel and everything was through the VJs. So 
that's really the thought process of, of creating this film. I, I want that same experience for the viewers now in 2023 when you watch this film. That's the narrative is coming from um, obviously the VJs, but then you're also hearing from these great artists that are you know worldwide superstars in this very unique environment. They're live. Uh, so just really trying to put that all together and, <laughs> and fit it in two hours was the goal. Yeah. How did they react to the idea of talking about this? Uh, I often wonder where they are. I mean, some of them, we know where they are, but so many of them seem to go on to have, you know, lives like everyone else, but what a cool job. And how do they look back on it? You know, it's interesting. I think um, it was clear to me whilst talking to them early on that they were, um, I don't know, skeptical that this film, that there would be, um, you know, an opportunity for it to be on such a big stage um, or that, you know, um, the, the powers that be Bell Media, that, you know, obviously own this incredible gold uh, treasure trove of archives would, you know, finally allow someone in there and, and have, you know, complete access to it. So, I mean, obviously it's been nothing but positive. They are still, you know, some of them, and for the most part, a lot of them are still very active on social media and they recognize that, that period in their life was so special and meaningful to so many, so many viewers growing up in Canada and, and they're still, um, you know, living that moment. So I don't know, man, it was just about trying to capture all that and, and take a trip down memory lane. And, um, yeah. 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 What were you hoping to, to find out from them? Because I, you, you, even just in that snippet, there are so many, there interesting little tidbits there about just how, seat of the pants it was right because it always looked like it was pretty much going going with the flow but you always thought oh i guess there must be a lot of coordination going on behind the scene it turns out <laughs> absolutely not that was the biggest shocker to me was i i had just assumed as anyone would okay this is a a tv channel that's going live across the country the people that are in front of it must have at least some experience there must be someone there you know cueing them to do some of this and and maybe not because that was, it felt really off the cuff. Um, but yeah, that was, I, I didn't realize that until speaking with all of them, you know, you start to put it all together and you realize pretty much across the board, none of these individuals had any on-air experience at all and thrown into a live environment. Um, you, you have people all around the building outside, you have them inside, you have the biggest artists in the world and so much pressure to deliver and, and do that job. So that was the biggest surprise to me is that these, these individuals, they, man, they were just thrown into the ringer and, you know, sink or swim kind of thing. Sean Menard is with us this half hour. He's the director of a new documentary called 299 Queen Street West, which is all about the history of much music. It's going to premiere a little later this month at the South by Southwest Film Festival in Austin. That's that's great. Uh, I, you know, I, I was when I saw that, I'm like, that's wonderful that they would be interested in a documentary about much music, because you think, oh, you know, how how much do Americans know about about the history of that? The, the, you know, you were not alone in that thought process. When I when I uh, submitted blindly, I was thinking, yeah, this is this is going to be difficult. But I know when someone watches it, um, and they see it through a lens of not not really knowing what this was, but but hey, wait a minute, these are some world-class artists, some of the biggest stars in music in the 80s and the 90s. And um, we'd never really quite seen them like this before because it was so different than MTV. Uh, of course, MTV was taped. Much music was live, and it had a completely different vibe to it. But, yeah, when they, uh, the head of the festival called me up and said, 
that it actually kind of reminded them of, of their festival in a sense, because it started off so small and it grew and it's grow. I mean, South by is probably, you know, neck and neck now with Sundance, uh, yeah. you know, one of the top festivals in the U S so. Yeah, that's a big, that's a huge deal. Cause you made this on a really, I mean, you explained it earlier, like I, you made the Carter effect a few years back, which is of course about Vince Carter and his huge impact on ba- basketball in Toronto. And uh, I was living in Toronto when he was playing with the Raptors and across the country. This one you did, I mean, this one you did on a real budget and uh, already it feels like people are really embracing it. it. Must be, must be really satisfying. It is, it is. It's, um, it was Obviously, on my last project, I was commissioned to do that by um, mm-hmm. LeBron James Production Company in Los Angeles. And I think that's kind of what led me to realize early on. I, I was more surprised on that because I had tried to make that film in Canada. And everyone, all the broadcasters had said, no, everyone knows that story. We're not interested. And it took American. It took <laughs> one of the biggest athletes in the world to, to yeah. get behind it. And so I always kind of had this, that, you know, and that eventually went worldwide on Netflix. So it opened my eyes to, you know, just because it's a Canadian story doesn't mean that it doesn't have global appeal. And I think that's a, a huge misnomer up here. And, and we always how do we carry this um, kind of belief in ourselves that sometimes our stories are just for us and they're not as, you know, Americans might not care. We've got, you know, that complex going. And I'm just, I love trying to dissolve that and, and show people like, you know, we can highlight our, our, our these great, uh, you know, periods of our history and and share them with the rest of the world. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's always how you told the story. I mean, there's all kinds of great stories everywhere. You think about the, you know, great literature was set in small little places and they could be anywhere. It's just all how the, tor- the story is told. And you're right, the Much Music story is a really, really interesting one because it produced a lot of recognizable names. They had lots of really great artists on the show. It was completely uh, look completely uncontrolled at some points. Uh, what did you walk away with after you'd finished it all off? What did what, what did what was your lasting impression of the experience of trying to make a doc about uh, the history of much music? Oh man, it's to be honest with you, I really just kind of completed it last night. So um, <laughs> well, I was putting the finishing touches. So I'm still still even the trailer you played. I, I I had just cut that last weekend on a whim because I needed to put something out. So I, I haven't really got that reflective yet. Um, yeah, no kidding. Yeah. But it, it, it's it's interesting. I mean, doing this type of project completely, you know, you talk about shoestring budget. I mean, it, it was that for sure, uh, in a sense. But you know, if I didn't just move ahead on this thing, I wo- I worry that maybe it wouldn't have gotten done that way. Like it, it wouldn't yeah. have existed. So I I really just had to find a way to just throw on cameras and start, and then hope that. Bell Media and, 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 you know, the owners of the footage would, would come on board, which they did. And, yeah, um, yeah it kind of got it. It feels, it feels like, listen, the, the 40 year, 40th anniversary is coming up of the launch. It feels like the right time to do it. When will Canadians get to see it? Uh, well, Canadians will actually get to see it later this year on Crave. But to be honest with you, Ben, for me, I, I'm, I'm going to take this, this film and I'm going to go across the country and I'll probably do a night or two in every major city you know, bring a VJ or two out because I re- much music was a real communal thing. You know, if, if you wanted to watch your favorite, uh, you know, band that was there live, if, if you couldn't show up, you made sure that was, you know, set in your, <laughs> in your schedule and your friends would come over and you'd watch it. I remember. And, it. Yeah. and so I want to recreate that and have that, that, that great theater experience and, and give people a little bit extra by having, you know, maybe like a Q and a after. So I'll probably, 
you know, be making that announcement, um, I don't know, later this summer, but, uh, and hopefully get out there in the fall. But that's, uh, that's the plan right now. In the meantime, best of luck in, uh, best of luck in Austin. I'm sure it's going to be great at South by Southwest. I'm sure they'll love it and look forward to seeing you uh, when you make your tour, when you do the tour. Awesome. That sounds great. I appreciate the time, Ben. It wasn't long ago, of course, when Canadians were desperate to get their hands on rapid COVID-19 antigen tests. So much so that governments, federal and provincial, provincial wound up with tons of them. Um, and as they lost their importance, of course, very few people I know still use them. You see the odd one, right? If you think you're sick, maybe you use an antigen test, but certainly not as required as they used to be. So right now, Ottawa is left with about 90 million of them. Um, they're going to expire within a couple of years, all of them. Um, Overall, Ottawa ordered about 800 million rapid COVID tests and it cost about $5 billion. 680 million of them were sent to the provinces. So almost all of them ended up being distributed to the provinces themselves. And they have huge surpluses now. Uh, BC has about 28 million, Quebec 63 million, Alberta nearly 50 million. So how did that happen? I mean, hindsight. <laughs> It's a beautiful thing, right? We needed them when we needed them, and then we didn't need them anymore. There was still a lot coming, right? We get that. But as we look back at uh, what's happened over the last several years because of the COVID-19 epidemic or pandemic, um, could we do anything better? Could we do things differently? Could we plan better for the next time? Joining me now with more on that is Mahesh Nagarajan. He's a professor and senior associate dean for research at the Souter School of Business in UB- at UBC and a specialist in supply chains. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Oh, thank you, Ben. It's been interesting to look back, of course, in hindsight, it's all very easy to spot the problems, but to look back at what some of the uh, supply chain issues were at the height of the pandemic and afterwards, tell me a bit about the uh, the rapid tests, because it seems we've ended up with a lot of them that we don't need. Right. Um, yeah, we do have quite a lot of them, you know, in in the millions, and almost every province has uh, quite a lot of tests, again, in the millions, stockpiled that we have. You know, the expiry dates for these uh, have passed for some of them, and Health Canada has extended the expiry dates for some of them. Uh, I guess it still means that they can use it and it will, uh, you can get some results out of it. We are not fully clear on how accurate the results are. These are classic problems that happen when you have uh, an underlying demand that is extremely hard to predict. You know, and this demand was incredibly hard to predict. We had different waves, different policy requirements internationally. Uh, different hospital utilizations that needed more testing, right? So there was clinical pressures, societal pressures, policy pressures that just compounded the demand uncertainty. And when you have this sort of demand uncertainty, you're going to have either people not getting tests or you're going to have inventory or both, which is what happened in Canada. Yeah, we sort of, it was like when the music stopped, we were left holding a lot of these things. But in, in you know, a few months earlier, these would have been out the door. I mean, I think there were almost 600 million that That's were right. distribu- distributed ultimately. So uh, a, a difficult to predict. But when you look at what happened uh, with different things during the uh, during the height of the pandemic and afterwards, what are some of the lessons that we should learn about something like, I mean, we didn't even know what a rapid antigen test was a few years ago. So that's a tough one. But what are some of the lessons we should learn from what well, we've I experienced? Mean- yeah, there are, you know, there are like big lessons, right? After every pandemic, I'm sure uh, public health is sort of figuring out what they would do for the next pandemic. But I, you know, immediately as a as a business operations person, there are a few things that I think uh, we can we can easily learn, even in this pandemic, that would have made a few things easier. First, I think uh, we could have had a more coordinated approach between the provinces. I mean, right now it was sort of a free for all with you know different provinces 
and different jurisdictions having different differing testing policies, right? And therefore, ordering up antigen tests, and it would have been much easier if it all had like a standard policy. You know, right. that would have been easier to predict if information had exchanged across provinces saying, hey, this is what is coming down the pipe. This is what we are actually going to do. That would have helped. And one thing I did not see was a coordinated response, right? A coordinated response makes the demand variability go down. You can predict a lot easier sometimes leading up to these stock price. The second thing is having, now we know what are the kinds of things that will happen. You know, we need things like masks and PPEs. We need tests. You know, vaccines are harder because vaccines require a very specific development. So you, we would have sort of contracts and understanding with companies that make it. And if, and I think a harder thing to do is if you realize that we do not have those relationships or access to that capacity is to really think hard about when it would make sense to have that strategic capacity in Canada. Now, but that's very hard because we are a pretty small country. So it's probably going to be very expensive to do it. When you look at, uh, I mean, I suspect next time around, if there is, when and if there is a next time around, or I should say it, when there's a next time around, um, that what we'll need might change. But I think from a supply chain perspective, and you can correct me on this, there is a way to mitigate against some of these problems, regardless of what it is you find yourself needing. Yeah, I think you're correct. And we've already learned some of these lessons, broadly, not just from medical supplies, but for all products. Uh, supply chains are highly not transparent as they stand. We don't know what is actually happening. It's very complex. There are multiple layers. And all of that has been designed with one thing in mind, which is cost, primarily. I think the shift now is that is not sufficient. We need to really think hard about things like safety and transparency, visibility. And that is definitely a much greater impetus on things of that sort. Right. So there are those lessons that have happened. And also asking, do we even understand? So the, going back to this visibility, one of the things that caught a lot of people, a lot of supply chains by surprise is the fact that they did not know what capacity existed where. And so they were left scrambling. So going in with your eyes open would be a huge benefit. Because you think with how automated supply chains are now that we would have an idea where everything, I mean, I think that was always the, you know, the whole notion for someone who doesn't follow the supply chain system closely, the idea that you can track a shipment from the moment it leaves the leaves the one place to the factory, essentially, until it arrives at your door, leads the individual to think that this is all very automated and, and precise now when we've discovered that that's not quite the case. Well, it certainly can be automated and precise, right? right? And it is in some parts, but it certainly isn't in other places. I mean, you've probably had your own favorite story of, you know, asking, ordering something from a retailer and they say it's back ordered and you ask them, when do you think I'll get it? And they're like, well, I don't know. Yeah, right? we don't know. <laughs> or where is the part for this uh, uh, component that I bought? I need a spare part. Where is the spare part? Well, I don't know. It's in some factory in the US. So it's not that visible as you think we would hope it would be. And the whole example of the rapid antigen tests, uh, I suppose, lays claim to that, right? Because we ended up with a whole bunch of them that we didn't need. I guess they're going to, it looks like they're going to expire. So it was essentially a waste, but a waste that might not have been preventable, or perhaps it was. I mean, it was, I mean, the question is, as I said, when you have this level of variability of demand, you're only going to have one of two things happen. You're either going to have not enough tests or you're going to have too many tests, right? The, but But you're right, Ben. One could argue, perhaps if you had been more coordinated and more thoughtful, we could have had a lesser amount of waste. We would have always ended up with more inventory. That's for sure. But perhaps it doesn't have to be this this much. I guess you can't send them back either, right? That's money, lo money lost. You, can't, I, I you can't send them back. You probably can't recycle them to use it in other places. And I'm sure they thought about that. But those are probably, again, expensive choices. 
And uh, I, I, have you seen any improvements? I know the, the the supply chain seems to have supply chain broadly seems to have improved uh, a bit of late. It seems to be getting better and sort of easing off the real crunch that happened during the height of the pandemic. But are you already seeing changes to uh, the way people approach it now, given what we've learned? In organizations, yes, there is a much greater use of technology in supply chains that have been propelled, I think, in large parts by the pandemic. There is also a much greater push to have shorter and more visible supply chains because scarcity can hit these supply chains really, really hard. And I think the third thing that has happened is, again, as I mentioned, more coordinated purchasing right, and procurement. I do think that if, I hope we never have another pandemic, but let's say there is a need for PPEs and masks that come through, Canada's response is going to be much more efficient this time around. Right? Yeah. In the meantime, you can keep those antigen tests as a reminder, I suppose. I know we have a few still in, in a cupboard somewhere back yeah, at home. Quite a bit. <laughs> yes, uh, Mahesh, thank you so much for your time tonight. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Well, 18 months after the Canadian or the Canada Emergency Response Benefit Program, or CERB, came to an end, uh, the Canada Revenue Agency is still sorting through how much of it went out the door and how much of it went out the door to people who didn't deserve it. Um and now they've done an audit. So the Globe and Mail reported this today. They've done an audit of more than $5 billion in CERB and other emergency payments to individuals during the pandemic. They figured out about 65% of them, 65% of that $5 billion went to ineligible recipients who must reimburse uh, the government. Now, they targeted these. They knew what they were looking for. So they picked ones they thought were high risk, thus the very high number of 65%. But still, that's about $3.5 billion that they already have figured out went out the door that shouldn't have. And now they're trying to get it back. We also found, uh, we heard this number for the first time, they've already recuperated nearly a billion dollars since they started uh, sending out those letters last year for this money back. They'll be doing that all the way through to 2025. Uh, so again, with hindsight, we look back at these huge um, payment systems that were put into place to try to keep people afloat through those early days at the height of the pandemic when so many people were out of work. Uh, but now that we have some benefit of being able to look at what happened and did it work or did it not, uh, there are questions we can answer specifically for next time. And joining me now to help us do that is David McDonald. He's the senior economist with the Center, the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives in Ottawa. David, thank you. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. So this was interesting. We did get a first snapshot of uh, sort of how what the CRA has been doing when it comes to CERB and, uh, you know, ineligible recipients. Uh, what did we learn today? Yeah, so, I mean, it's not a surprise that the CRA has been sending out letters to recipients saying, hey, look, you you better show us some 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 additional paperwork or you're going to owe some CERB back or in some cases you just owe some CERB back. Um, this is really the first snapshot that we've got of actual numbers of how much money has been paid back, how much the CRA, uh, how many, you know, how much does the CRA think is is ineligible for CERB that people should be paying back? Uh, so so far, it looks like the CRA has received about a billion dollars back. Um, they think that they're owed three in ineligible CERB payments uh, in this batch. And so, uh, you know, this is the the first shot at it. Now, now they paid out eighty two billion. So you know, this is uh, you know under five percent uh, have been found ineligible, and and a bunch of that has already been paid back. So, uh, you know, this is this is the first snapshot really of um, of some of this collection attempt from the CRA. 
Yeah, I mean, th- their their pool was relatively small. I think they went after what they thought would be high risk um, uh, potential high risk recipients, and I, I guess they figured about sixty five percent of the payments were ineligible. But they targeted it that way, so one might think that in the other many billions, the rate might be significantly lower. Yeah, so they they chose the files that they thought were probably going to be ineligible in the first place. So they took right. some broad criteria and said, these are going to be the files we think are ineligible. Now we're going to go through them with a fine tooth comb and see if they actually are ineligible. Uh, and they found that surprise, a lot of them were ineligible, but they picked them that way. So this is kind of, this is an audit. They didn't audit every single payment. They took the ones that they thought were most likely uh, to, you know, to not meet the criteria. And those are the ones they looked at. So that that's what we're seeing today. Um, and so uh, it, it's, you know, I don't, it's not clear whether this is representative of all, uh, you know, it's almost certainly not representative. I mean, the, you know, the, the rates of audit are way higher, but they, they chose it that way. They went after the people that they thought would be most likely uh, to not meet the criteria. Because the government's been under a fair amount of pressure of late for not going after. I mean, there's been a perception out there that money was paid to a whole bunch of people who weren't eligible for it. And uh, the government's decided, or the CRA has decided that it's not worth going after them. And clearly that's not the case universally if a billion has already been recollected. Yeah, I mean, the big piece here that's missing is the why. Why right. are they ineligible? Um, and and that we don't we don't know. And this report doesn't tell us. Uh, and it ex- you know it explicitly didn't examine that. So uh, this is I mean this is sort of troubling because the why matters. Um, you know the two big criteria to receive CERB were um, that you worked in the previous year and made five thousand dollars under a variety of definitions, um, and that you weren't making more. Thousand dollars a week, um, you know. Otherwise, uh, you, you were ineligible to receive sir. So the question in my mind is, which one of those was violated, and and which way? Um, so you know, when it comes to proof of employment, uh, you know, were half the people deemed ineligible because they made four thousand dollars instead of five thousand dollars in in twenty twenty or twenty nineteen rather? I mean, if that's the case, if you make four thousand dollars over the course of an entire year, you're pretty low income. And so, you know, does it make sense to go after these folks for $2 billion uh, when they're clearly pretty low income and, uh, you know, maybe they are ineligible, but maybe we should consider a low income amnesty or, uh, you know, alternatively, uh, are a big portion of these people uh, who made over $1,000 a week. So maybe they weren't really unemployed at all. Uh, They just applied for this program because it was easy to get. And it was just sort of and, and that's, in my mind, a much more fraudulent example than folks were low income and they didn't quite meet the threshold. Uh, That in my mind doesn't really qualify us as saying, you know, we should throw the book at them. Yeah. And when you look at, I mean, this is going to be going on until 2025, according to the same report, right? They're going to continue doing this right for a few more years, trying to claw this money back uh, if they deem it ineligible. Uh, I guess the big question here is, is at what expense, who do you target and uh, how clear cut are the guidelines about who you're trying to get this money back from? Because I think most Canadians would appreciate uh, that there is a difference between an honest mistake and fraud and the fraudsters should be gone after and people who made honest mistakes should be given some leeway. Yeah. And especially if it's honest mistakes that they're not going to be able to pay for anyway. I mean, you know, if you received CERB for months uh, on end and then you're deemed ineligible and, the, you know, CRA wants $20,000 back. Like, you know, if you're arguing that they made $4,000 instead of $5,000 and therefore they owe $20,000 back, well, they don't have that $20,000, right? I mean, people who are making that little didn't save the CERB money in a bank account ready to pay back the CRA four years later. Um, and so uh, in some sense, it doesn't make it, you know, we can go after them all we want. They're not going to pay that money back because they don't have the money to pay back. 
Um, you know, the other thing I think that's that's worth pointing out here is that there should be some, uh, you know, limit as to how long CRA is going to go after people for this money. Um, I, I think that, you know, in terms of fraudulent cases, uh, they should go after those those big fish and do it quickly. But in terms of recouping, you know, five hundred or a thousand dollars, two thousand dollars, five years later, um, is is a terrible example uh, of what the CRA could be doing. When we look at what we've learned today, um, I mean, it's just a very small snapshot. Again, a review of about, uh, you know, $5.29 billion worth of CERB payments was reviewed. 65% of them deemed ineligible because they really were targeting uh, high-risk cases. Uh, does it tell you anything about, about the effectiveness of the program? I mean, there is thought a thought out there that a whole lot of money went out the door to a whole lot of people who didn't need it. Um, you know, I think that in the in the moment uh we need to move money out the door and so could we have made this much better in terms of compliance yes we absolutely could have with with month-long delays uh in terms of application you know the time between when people applied when they got the money that that's the ei program right the ei program does that the the ei program checks every box it dots every i and crosses every t and does it in triplicate and once that's done in triplicate then you get your money what that means is that you'll often wait a month, two months to get the money uh, in the middle of a massive pandemic economic crisis uh, when the entire system crashed and burned because you couldn't actually do that many checks. You know, it's it's fine to sort of look back on the past and say, well, we could have done it this way and so on. Uh, there was there was a trade off and a known trade off at the time between making it perfect and making it fast. I think we chose correctly. Uh, and so, you know, I'm, I'm all for going after fraudsters, uh, but whether we should be going after people who got an extra thousand or two thousand bucks, uh, you know, I think that uh, the minister needs to needs to step in and put an end to that. David McDonald, as always, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. One of the bands that uh, got some exposure thanks to Much Music, like so many Canadian bands, that might have been the real legacy of much music was how many Canadian bands, young Canadians were exposed to Canadian bands put on equal level with their international counterparts, right? That was part of the beauty of it is that you could see a video by, you know, any number of superstars from the eighties and nineties and right around it or before it or after it, you'd see a video by a Canadian, you know, whether we're seeing, you know, the, the rap, the American rap smash of, of that, of that time, whether, and then followed up by Maestro Fresh West, or there was all kinds of examples of that where Canadian artists were put on equal footing with American artists. And it really gave young Canadians a chance to appreciate them. And one of those bands, of course, was the Crash Test Dummies out of Winnipeg when they, you know, it's 30 years ago last year that uh, The Ghosts That Haunt Me was released. And that was a big hit in this country. The Superman song, which you just heard, um, was a big part of that. And then in 1993, God Shuffled His Feet would sell millions of copies, five million, I think, hit top five in the U.S., all paced by that baritone of lead singer Brad Roberts, the backing vocals of Ellen Reed. There's been lots since a lot more records, different genres, different styles, a few hits, a few records that didn't sell very well. A remake of Ecstasy's The Ballad of Peter Pumpkinhead for the Dumb and Dumber soundtrack. That was big. And uh, through it all, there's been some personnel changes, a long hiatus. And then they hit the road for the first time in a long time back in 2018. And they're touring again. And they have a new song out on March 10th called Sacred Alphabet. That's a week from tonight. Here's a snippet of that. In the beginning was not the word, not yet. There was no sacred alphabet. 
alphabet No subject, object, verb or tense Sound had not been enslaved to sense There you have it. It's a real um, Leonard Cohen feeling to that, isn't it? I mean, you don't want to compare everything to everything else, but the first time I listened to it, and, and others have said the same thing, uh, Leo Coelho, who was our technical producer, said the same thing. It had a real Leonard Cohen vibe to it. Um, of course, the voice, distinctive, Brad Roberts. Uh, they're on tour in the U.S. these days, and that's where on Wednesday we found Brad Roberts and Ellen Reed of the Crash Test Dummies. Here's our interview. Thank you for having us. You've, you've, you've used many different styles over the years. Uh, people who might just know some of the hits, how do you keep the crowd happy, still play the new stuff and play all the things you want to play? Well, you know, what? Uh, when we first started touring, we weighted the set very heavily towards God Shoveled His Feet and we played every single song on the record. Now we're doing some of the same cities over again a year later, so we had to change up the set list. I was a little reluctant because I thought, you know, how many people are going to know these other songs from our other records? Because those records didn't really sell as well as God Shovel His Feet. But so far, we've been getting really positive responses to our new for to the other material. I can't really call it new because it's 10 or 12 years since we recorded any of those songs, with the exception of a new song that we have, which I guess we'll get to. Yeah, we'll get to it. Yeah, that's, we'll talk about that because it's an interesting, the production of it is interesting too. When you look at, at, at sort of, I think, I don't know whether Canadians fully understand what a parallel, I wouldn't call it a parallel career, but how much success you had in the US with different stuff, it seemed. And maybe that was because of the, the power of, of alt-rock radio and college radio in America is a little bit different than here at home. But you really have sort of a, a, a different kind, it seems like a, a very devoted fan base in the US. Yeah, we do. Our first record came out in Canada and did, you know, like five times platinum or some damn thing. It did extremely well, but it only had a kind of a culty following in America. However, the following in America that, that it did have was very devoted. And that record, of course, when, when we put out God Shoveled His Feet, our next record, that first record became revisited by some of our fans we kind of won twice over and the song that we had put out as a single on our first record ended up as the b-side on the single for our second record so it ended up getting some play as well and as a result we got a good head start with the u.s brad i was seeing an inter interesting interview there's this great dutch series that goes over individual records and it was i was happy to see that mm, was there it was it was it was great because they do all kinds of you know they do all kinds of songs from over the years and uh, there was an interesting line that you put in about how you found your voice because i think we grew up we're about the same age you know i grew up listening to david coverdale and all those guys too you know sort of the, the screamers the the heavy rock guys and uh it took you a while to figure out that you didn't have to sing like that tell me a bit about that I figured my voice was suited for Irish traditionals and maybe church. <laughs> that was about it because, you know, it, it's so deep. And as you mentioned, in the early 90s, we were coming in out, of, out of an era of screamer metal. I was trying to get other people to sing my songs for a while, and they just weren't doing it the way I heard it in my head. So I just became the singer de facto. I'm lucky enough to have the support of Ellen Reed, who could always sing better than me to begin with. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, well, you you sound great together. I think that's one of the one of the beauties of the band is that is that it's the combination of the voices that works so well. 
Yes, I agree. <laughs> Ellen, I mean, you 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 were at uh, you were from Selkirk, right? And you you were in Winnipeg at the time, and I think you saw the band. What was your first impressions of what was to become your band and the Crash Test Dummies? I was actually in the band before it was even Crash Test Dummies. We right. were playing at the Blue Note. Um, I, I was really just brought on because Brad needed a keyboard player, and and a mutual friend said, "Well, I know someone." and I just really played for a few songs and it, it just built from there, but I never had any kind of idea that it would become my career. <laughs> Here we are. Here we are. What's it like to look back on it now? I mean, time flies, right? Time really does fly. And you look back at bands that were popular in the, that have been popular for many, many years. I mean, you're on, this was, you celebrated uh, the 30th anniversary of the release of that, uh, of that first big album just recently. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, we recorded it, and re- I think we released "God Shuffled to Speed" in '93. Uh, so it'll be it'll be 30 years this year for that one. "Ghosts That Haunt Me" is is over 30 years old, which is weird because I'm only 37. So I'm, I'm not I'm not sure how the math works on that. I've been interested for the two of you. You know, I, I was noticing that some producers and so on have taken your songs, remixed them, given them new beats, and so on. You've always been pretty open to that, right? I mean, you've you, you've toyed around with a lot of different sounds over the years. Perhaps people remember those earlier tracks and that style the most, but there's been a lot of different genres since. I've always been interested in writing in a variety of genres because I just don't want to make the same record over and over again. So our first album was very folky, and our second record was much more... Uh, Alternative? <laughs> It sort of it, it kind of defied it kind of defied description until someone decided it was alt, right? I mean that was kind of the strange thing about it. Yeah, but it's got um, the sound evolved quite a bit from from the first to the second record. It, we went from being very folky to um, more rock and and lots of lush board pads and synthesizers and and then after that we put out kind of a rock record, a worm's life, and then we put out kind of a funk record even though funk was more of a 70s phenomena and then a country record then a live record and then a christmas record and then a record wow. made with toy instruments so it's been all over the map i was interviewing uh ivan with Men without hats a while back he's at where i am here in victoria these days and we were talking about just having a huge hit and the kind of pressure that puts on you because of course back in the 80s his record company basically said listen just write safety dance a hundred times and we'll be happy and i suspect you had some of the same pressure when it came to some of your your big hits uh in the, in the 90s well you know it's funny we didn't we weren't subjected to so much pressure because I don't think the record label had any faith in us to, to begin with. Like, I don't think they, I know BMG Canada did not expect Superman song to do nearly as well as it did. That was a ballad and it was kind of unheard of to release a ballad as your first single. It was a confused notion putting that song out, although it ended up being a smash hit. And, and I was very grateful for that. And then on our second record, you know, we had, we had got our hit out of our first record just by kind of doing what we did and not plugging into a formula that was obvious. We were more or less given free reign to do what we wanted to do. And um, then we had a bunch of luck with the second single on the second record as well, or the first single on the second record as well. Brad Roberts and Ellen Reed are with us from Nashville, members of Crash Test Dummies. We're talking about uh, touring again. They are on tour right now for a second time in, in as many years. They're in uh, Nashville tonight. And uh, the release of a new song coming up on Friday, March the 10th, called Sacred Alphabet. Again, it's what it's, you know, as always, it's unex- it's about, it's slow. It's it's very much a hymn. 
It's a really interesting track. Uh, tell me a bit about how it came together. Well, I wrote the lyrics first, and that took me quite a long time because they're they're a little complicated, you know, as it goes. They're not, you know, concise, concise though, concise and complicated. I mean, it's it's a pretty tightly packed uh, track. Oh, thank you. It took me quite a while to write the music. I started studying, you know, when the pandemic started, everybody kind of had to remake their lives. And I started studying composition and counterpoint. Counterpoint is a method of writing melodies that's about 400 years old. And it's um, wildly fascinating to me, at least. (laughs) And um, that really influenced the uh, construction of Sacred Alphabet in a big way. Scott Harding produced it. Uh, I remember him from his hip-hop days. I mean, he was one of the most influential kind of uh, people around production and engineering in uh, in the U.S., in New York in the early 90s. And Ellen, he produced your solo album, right? He did. He, he produced uh, seven of, or six of the ten tracks, yeah. So what was it like to bring him in? Because he would bring, I know he's done a lot of different kind of work, but he brings a different sensibility to your sound as well. Um, yeah, I mean, he had a lot of really good ideas and, and he, he had a lot of good connections of, of musicians that would have been appropriate for, for what I was doing. And I, I think, you know, he and Brad are good buddies from way back. So I was lucky enough to be able to ride on the coattails of that of that connection. But yeah, working with him was great. He's, he's a lovely, lovely guy, a multiple talented guy. Yes, and of course, he also produced, as well as some of our older records, he produced Sacred Alphabet, but he did a great job. What does he, what does he, I, I mean, I was thinking back maybe more to the early 90s when your first records were out and he was doing uh, stuff with like Black Sheep and, and sort of the more the more progressive hip hop bands out of New York, very different sounds at the time. Uh, how was it for that, uh, those two, that, those sensibilities to merge together a few decades later? Well, you know, Scott is um, an extremely eclectic musical mind, although it's true that he did work with some some hip-hop artists in the early 90s. He's always worked on a wide variety of different styles of music. Desky Martin Wood, jazz players. He's done pop music. He comes with a pedigree that is fairly well established to begin with. And he actually went to music school, so he had to take counterpoint himself. He would understand. Yeah, he would understand. Yeah. Yes. So it really worked out nicely that way. Any plans to tour in Canada soon? I see a lot of the dates so far. This is just a spring uh, concert tour you're doing uh, all across. I mean, in many parts of the U.S., but uh, when do you plan to come back? Yeah, we're we're working on dates for, for later in 2023, but they haven't been written in stone yet. So our lips are sealed, but, the, <laughs> but they, they are pretty confident that we're going to be back in 2023 later on in the year. And is Sacred Alphabet the prelude to uh, to a new album? I suppose that would be the obvious question. I suspect it must be. <laughs> well, it's the prelude to another song, which I wrote as a companion piece, but haven't recorded yet. I don't know if it's the prelude to another record or not. Records are pretty expensive to make, and it's hard to make the money back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's changed a lot, hasn't it, since the year? I mean, it was just automatic back in the day that if you recorded a track an album would follow but i guess the the, the whole way music is consumed and so on it, it you don't really have to anymore yeah i felt kind of guilty just putting out one song to tell you the truth but it was my first time doing it and uh i just i did it because everybody else is doing it <laughs> Why not? Why not? Uh, back to the touring. I mean, it's uh, 
I, it's a grind, right? A, a pleasant one, no doubt. But is it been? Um, has it been everything you hoped it would be so far? Yes, it has been because the crowds have been great, and that's always the main thing. Most of the time, when you're on the road, you're either sitting in a van or sitting in backstage all afternoon waiting for the show to start or sitting in a hotel room. But once a day for that hour and a half, you do get to go have enormous fun. So it makes it all worthwhile. I was asking someone the other day, I was saying that, that I would be speaking to you this week and someone was reflecting on that, um, that mm, maybe the most butchered karaoke song of all time. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I imagine there's only a select few that can hit those notes. Uh, If it's a consolation to the rest of the world, though, I can't sing karaoke worth a damn for anybody else. (laughs) Is that really? You could only do, do you walk in and you could only do Crash Test Dummies tracks? Is that how it works? Pretty much, yeah. That and Leonard Cohen and Nick Cave. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that. There was, there was, um, I didn't want to draw parallels, but the new song has a, a sacred alphabet, has a bit of a Leonard Cohen vibe to it. And that, I don't want to, you know, you never want to compare everything in life. You know, it, it is a very different kind of song, but you get a bit of a, a bit of a Leonard Cohen vibe on it. Sort of, you know, I've seen a lot. Here's life, <laughs> what you've been doing since the get go. But well, I take that as a big compliment. And I think one of the things that Leonard Cohen has got going for him is that, you know, there's, there's sex and there's the sacred. And he's always crossing the line between the two, which I, I find in an intriguing way of going about things. I kind of do that myself. And Ellen, you sing on it too. I, I've uh, you added to it as well because it's 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 a very it's slow. It's quite again. It's quite it's it's very hymn like, and then it hits its crescendo near. They will play a little bit of it as we uh, as we leave the interview. But uh, how did you like working on that track? It's different, isn't it, from a lot of what you've done? Certainly your solo stuff, Ellen. Um, it's a very sort of spare piece. And when Brad sent us the demo that he'd recorded of the song, all of us said, "Just leave it." just you and a piano because the track really just kind of shimmers. It doesn't really need a lot, but um, Brad was determined to get us all in there taking part, which was very kind of him. So, you know, I, I love doing backups. Like that's what I, I love to do. So singing my parts on, on that track were, was nothing but fun for me. March the 10th, the rest of us will get to hear the whole thing. Any last words to your fans here at home? I, I know people are uh, excited to see you get excited for the new stuff, just on how you're doing and uh, happy that happy that you're still playing, I think. Yeah, I, my message to them is come to our shows. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brad Roberts, Ella Reed, uh, good luck tonight in Nashville. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your interview. Thank you. Kind of taking a look back at, um, you know, it's been nearly three, three years now, really, since uh, the pandemic just came roaring into our lives, you know, three years a little later this month. And all the things that happened after that, all the decisions that were made, the money that was spent, the programs that were ruled out, um, and the decisions that were made. And this isn't necessarily to criticize or to use the benefit of hindsight to poke holes at stuff. It's really to make sure that next time, when there is a next time, that we do this better, right? I think that's the whole point about looking back at these things. One of the big issues, of course, was the closing of borders. It became a real political football, but was it necessary? Did it work? Um, Should we have done it quicker, for instance? 
Let's take you back a little while. Here is Prime Minister Trudeau back on March 16th of 2020, nearly three years ago now, announcing that Canada was indeed closing its borders to foreign travellers, except for Americans, in in an attempt to limit the spread of COVID. We will be denying entry to Canada to people who are not Canadian citizens or permanent residents. This measure will carve out some designated exceptions, including for air crews, diplomats, immediate family members of Canadian citizens, and at this time, U.S. citizens. And that was that. I mean, I don't think in my lifetime I'd ever witnessed the borders closing like that. I mean, other than 9-11. And uh, it went on for ages, right? I mean, this was a worldwide phenomenon. So what kind of impact did it have? Was there a difference between when every country sort of shut down on itself versus when there were targeted closures a little earlier? Uh, Well, a new study out this week based from, from Canada uh, looked at data from 166 countries that closed their borders during the first 22 weeks of the pandemic, and they sum it up this way. Most targeted closures aimed at travelers from COVID-19 hotspots did little, did little to stop the spread. And while the total border closures, barring all non-essential travel, like the Prime Minister was just talking about there, did slow the spread of COVID-19, it came at such a high cost that they should only be considered in the future as a last resort. Well, to tell us all about this is the article's lead author. Matthew Poirier is a professor of social epidemiology and co-director of the Global Strategy Lab at York University in Toronto. Thank you. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. This has been a hotly debated uh, topic, I think, right from the outset. Uh, Did we act fast enough? Did we act too slow? Were the measures too broad? Uh, You've taken a really good look at how border closures worked right, right around the world, really. What were you looking for? Yeah, so we were looking at this unprecedented situation where uh, countries put in place border closures, uh, the first wave in February 2020, the first wave, uh, second wave in March 2020. And we saw it as an unprecedented natural experiment, as an opportunity to figure out whether these border closures work and under what condition. And you did come up with some pretty interesting findings. Uh, When did they work? Yeah, so I'll say off the bat that the, the findings are a little nuanced. Uh, some people are reading into the study and saying, oh, they definitely work or they never work. And the, the reality is somewhere in between. It, it's always the way, right? It's always the way. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, and so it, we essentially looked at, at two levels. Uh, we wanted to see what was happening on a global level. Are these border closures slowing down the pandemic globally? But also what's happening within individual countries? Are they able to control national epidemics? Uh, And so we're looking both nationally and globally and also between total border closures that are stopping all foreign nationals from traveling into a country uh, and targeted closures that were stopping only uh, foreign nationals from some countries from traveling into countries. What did you come? I mean, that is a lot of data, obviously. But what did you come up with uh, in terms of of the um, of those targeted closures that happened early? Because there was a lot of political pressure around those. Uh, how did those work out? Yeah. So, um, of course, with the with first reported cases coming out of China, many of the first uh, targeted closures targeted uh, either a region or all uh, Chinese travelers, and that uh, started to expand to other countries that were early to report COVID cases. And what we found is that on a global level, uh, these targeted closures did not slow down the global pandemic. Uh, We saw, uh, you know, about half of the world's population living in countries that put these in place at one point or another. 
and uh, the global pandemic uh, went on uh, more or less uninterrupted. It, it did not decrease significantly after they were put in place. Did you look into the reasons why that would be? We were simply too late. It had already started moving on its own and everything that came into place was was done. I mean, we couldn't have done it beforehand, right? We just, by the time we realized what was going on, it was too late to put in those kinds of measures. That's certainly part of it. Uh, we actually did find that uh, on a country by country level, uh, those countries that chose to put them in place earliest uh, did have a higher likelihood of uh, these targeted closures actually working. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, odds are, uh, if you're a country putting a targeted closure in place, it probably didn't make any difference uh, for slowing down the, the, the epidemic within a country and also for slowing down the pandemic globally. And that's probably because we had a really bad idea at the time of the real situation. Uh, we weren't testing enough. Uh, countries weren't necessarily reporting transparently. And that uh, it, it happened with many countries around the, around the world. And so policymakers were making these decisions in a really imperfect situation, lacking information uh, and uh, doing the best they could in those difficult situations. But uh, really, there was no uh, gold standard to reference uh, to know which countries to target and which countries not to. Yeah, and then then the WHO declares a pandemic, and and a lot of borders shut. And you found, you looked into that as well, and I gather you found that it did have an impact. I mean, it, it sort of it, it's intuitive that it would, but it, that it did in fact have an impact in slowing down when everything stopped. Right. So after this first wave of targeted closures uh, happened, there was a, a second global wave of total border closures, where really we saw uh, almost all global travel uh, come to a halt. Uh, we actually saw 95% of the world's population living in a country that put in place a, a total border closure. And because of just how widespread uh, uh, these border closures were, how um, immediately timed they were in mid-March, we did see this meaningfully reduce the uh, transmission of COVID-19 around the world. There was a significant reduction after these were put in place. Uh, also within countries, it did make a difference, but uh, it didn't necessarily work everywhere. And some countries that put in place total border closures did see the situation worsen after they were put in place. Yeah, I was looking at your findings and and while it you know, clearly, when everything was shut, there was some benefit. It, it it was odd to me that that it didn't it wasn't universal. That there were some countries that saw increases and some countries that just stayed the same, and others that saw benefits. Yeah, and we think that one of the keys there is that uh, these are are pretty blunt instruments, uh, and uh, at most, they're, you're really buying time uh, with these border closures, and so it really makes a big difference what countries are doing with that time that they may be buying uh, with. Uh, either a targeted or total closure. Are they ramping up testing and tracing programs? Are they limiting public gatherings? Are they putting in place a mandatory quarantine program for travelers? Uh, And if they're not doing that, if they're just saying, well, we've closed our borders, that is everything we need to do, uh, then uh, probably it's not going to be as successful as countries that use a many different tactics and approaches, public health measures to control the spread of, in this case, COVID-19. Matthew Poirier is with us this half hour. He's the lead author of a new article on uh, the, the 
really the effectiveness of border closures during the first 22 weeks of the COVID-19 pandemic. You'll remember, of course, back then that border closures were a very hotly debated topic. And uh, we now have the benefit of some hindsight. We can look at the data and see how effective they actually were. Uh, just within the Canadian context, I know you looked at, at individual countries. How did they work here? Right. So within the Canadian context, uh, we uh, went more or less immediately into a, a total border closure in uh, mid-March, uh, which, uh, according to our study for the Canadian context, did uh, meaningfully reduce transmission uh, within the country. And, and indeed, that's what we would expect, that a total closure would be more effective than a targeted closure. And that happened at the same time as many other countries were putting them in place, uh, the U.S. included. So uh, it uh, it actually, together with other countries, contributed towards slowing down the global pandemic. At the same time, it slowed down everything else, right? And I think when you've, you've looked at uh, the effectiveness of this, I think one of the conclusions you came up with is that in the future, these should be used with a lot of forethought. Absolutely. And uh, one thing that we want to make really clear is that uh, after this experience, some countries have become very fast to go to uh, especially targeted border closures as an immediate response to uh, any kind of pandemic threat. And not only is uh, a targeted closure less likely to be more effective, uh, but it imposes a severe economic social consequences on the countries uh, that are targeted. And oftentimes these countries are countries that are openly reporting uh, disease outbreaks, which is exactly what we want countries to do. Uh, and so, for example, with the first global Omicron wave, uh, South Africa was the first to uh, openly report that this was uh, a variant of concern and uh, warned other countries to prepare. And uh, as a result, Canada and other countries put in place a targeted closure that not only failed to control uh, the spread of the Omicron wave, but it also uh, imposed severe economic uh, consequences on a country that was just uh, being open and transparent. It seemed to me, uh, as, as a non-expert, that what was effective in the unknown of the very early days of the pandemic, because we just didn't know what we were dealing with, became increasingly less effective as, as, as the virus changed, um, and that perhaps some of the blunt instruments that might have had some success at the beginning uh, were no longer quite as effective or effective at all as it went on. Definitely. And uh, the situation at the start of the pandemic is not the same as the situation uh, further down the road when those variants did emerge. And uh, so into some of those more nuanced find, uh, findings from our study, we found that the early implementing countries were uh, more likely to see uh, positive impacts of border closures. Uh, and we also saw that for targeted border closures, countries that uh, targeted very expansively and so much so uh, that they almost resembled total border closures. Those are actually the ones that were more likely to succeed than countries that tried to target strategically hotspots around the world while leaving open travel from other countries. So uh, there really wasn't a, a good data driven approach to be doing this in those early days because there was no good data to begin with. Uh, and so uh, we saw that essentially it just mattered how much of the world was being uh, prevented from traveling. And uh, it didn't uh, matter if you were trying to be evidence-based about it. Right. So either you put up the, the complete wall or it's not going to, it didn't work particularly well, right? And other, other was a complete shutdown, which invariably stopped the spread, spread of just about anything uh, or other than within the country itself or the targeted one. I mean, the targeted ones were very political, right? I know you didn't get into that, but there was a lot of politics going on with the with the uh, with the way certain things were targeted. I, I remember. No, absolutely. 
And uh, it, there's no getting around the fact that these are political decisions. Uh, and there's actually been a good amount of research into why politicians might find these border closures to be attractive. Uh, and, uh, you know, things like diverting blame away from domestic sources and onto foreign sources, the fact that they're often widely supported by uh, by publics in the country, uh, they allow uh, policymakers to be seen as champions of national security. Uh, there's a lot of political reasons why border closures are attractive to put in place even if uh, politicians might uh, be told by scientists that they are unlikely to be uh, very effective. So walking away from this, what is your advice then to policymakers uh, if ever we find ourselves, I mean, we, we saw it re- recently uh, when, when, of course, there was a renewed outbreak when China lifted all its poli- all its restrictions and there was concern about spread again. There were some that went ahead with, uh, with restricting travel from China. What do you advise policymakers now about these sorts of very blunt instruments such as border closures? So our recommendation uh, is that uh, border closure should be considered as a measure of last resort. Uh, there should always be less restrictive uh, alternatives that are considered first, things like mandatory quarantine for international travelers, other uh, public health measures that might be taken instead. Uh, and uh, countries like Canada, higher res- uh, income uh, countries with resources to deal with these kinds of threats, uh, really, uh, th- there's very, very few situations where this is uh, a measure that should be considered. Uh, other countries, maybe with fewer resources that need time to prepare for uh, some uh, epidemic or pandemic threat that uh, is threatening them, uh, again, a total closure might be considered. Uh, it's definitely something that could be effective in some some situations if it's backed up with a robust public health response at the same time. Well, Matthew Poirier, thank you so much. Of course, it's been a pleasure. 